Hello. Today we'll be talking about Chapter 14, Southern Empires and Southern Seas from 1200 to 1500. The first topic is Tropical Africa and Asia. So the tropical regions of Africa and Asia, they share many environmental similarities. The west coast of Africa, it's semi-isolated by the Atlantic Ocean and the Sahara Desert. And Central Africa is um, in maritime contact with lands on the Indian Ocean. So Central Africa is much more uh, connected than Western Africa. And India um, was, was already long affected by overland trade routes through Afghanistan and the Middle East and Central Asia. But also, obviously, it has a huge, um, huge trading network around the Indian Ocean. So tropical environments in Africa and Asia, the tropics, this is a term for the equatorial region between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Um, It's basically the middle uh, latitudes of the earth. It has a warm climate and hot temperatures year round, no winter. Um, Africa is almost completely considered uh, tropical and also Arabia and most of India as well as Southeast Asia are considered tropical. Um, winds are very important here because the Earth's rotation causes winds to move clockwise north of the equator and counterclockwise south of the equator. The result is that there's a high-pressure air mass um, in the equator, which means that heavy rainfall is brought to Africa and other tropical regions. Monsoon is the name of a seasonal wind in the Indian Ocean caused by the differences in temperature between rapidly heating and cooling land masses like those of Africa and Asia and also by the slowly changing ocean waters. Monsoons are strong, predictable winds, and they have long been taken advantage of by sailors who rode across the open seas using the strong um, gusts, especially in the Indian Ocean trade. Um, so monsoons bring large rainfall, and this allows for the cultivation of several crops a year in India, Southeast Asia, and China, and it causes rainforest areas to develop too. Um, but you should note that altitudes did cause climatic, uh, climatic variation though, so in Mount, in the mountains that are located in eastern Africa and also the Himalayas in India, there's obviously not going to be tropical temperatures. There's extreme cold there. And also uh, the plateaus of inland Africa and the Deccan Plateau of central India have really cold temperatures too, like kind of like the tundra. All right, human ecosystems now, moving on from the environment to onto the people. So some peoples in these areas relied on hunting, fishing, and gathering, and these people lived life in small, mobile groups. The pygmy hunters, uh, located in several different locations in Central Africa, um, a group of very, or groups of very short people, um, they were very good for the pursuit of prey through the dense underbrush of underbrush of the forest. So this was how they made their way of life. In other places, herding was common. So especially where agriculture doesn't work. Um, so uh, many did not eat meat, though because the logic at the time was that the animals were of more value alive than they were dead. So they used the animals for other purposes, such as um, getting milk or, uh, uh, or using them for labor and stuff like that. The deserts of northern Africa and Arabia was where small populations with, um, survived with their camels, goats, and donkeys. And cattle herders lived on both sides of the Nile, so both in Sudan and in Somalia. 
Um, and in India, there were many pastoral groups. They mostly just lived in the Northwest Desert. In South and Southwest Asia, they favored cultivation, on the other hand. They didn't do pastoral. They weren't that pastoral like um, India was. Rice cultivation was very dominant in these areas that we're talking about. Um, for example, in the fertile Ganges plain of Northeast India, as well as in Southeast Asia and Southern China, rice was huge. It was a staple. Um, but the farmers also grew grains and legumes. Okay, um, in addition to the diet, these people in Africa and Southeast Asia ate, ma ate many tree crops. So, kola nuts were grown in West Africa, coconuts in Southeast Asia, and also bananas were grown all throughout this region. And um, you should note that unlike the European spread of farming, their farming was not really that harmful for the environment because they practiced a cultivation where they shifted to new lands every few years. Onto the water systems and irrigation. Um, so the inland delta of the Niger River in western Africa uh, produced fertilization for the growing of rice. But um, not all places had this natural luxury. So terraced hillsides and water control system were widely used. For example, in Vietnam, Java, Malay, and Burma. Uh, villagers in India built many dams in order to har harness water. Uh, the Delhi Sultanate, it lasted from 1206 to 1526 in, um, in, uh, in India. Uh, it centralized, the Delhi Sultanate centralized Indian, the M Indian Empire of varying extent, and it was created by Muslim invaders. Um, it, they had extensive water control systems. The Delhi Sultanate was almost known for this. And irrigation canals in the Ganges Plain made it possible to grow crops throughout the year, so they didn't have to go hungry. The island of Ceylon, which is known as modern Sri Lanka, had the most irrigation. Um, also, Cambodia's capital, Angkor, also had an impressive system of reservoirs and canals. But note that both of these, both Ceylon and um, Cambodia with Angkor, they both fell into ruin when their governments collapsed. So they were very vulnerable. So these systems fell apart. Mineral resources. Iron working was very common throughout Africa and um, southeastern Europe. I mean, sorry, no, uh, Southern Asia. So they used iron to make hoes, axes, and knives um, for farmers' use, but also spears and arrow points, needles, and nails. In Africa, um, blacksmiths were considered magical, and they were considered to have, along with silversmiths, they were considered to have magical powers. And in the Copper Belt of Southeastern Africa, which was prominent um, in the 1300s and 1400s, there was a lot of copper produced and shipped out to other places. Um, lost wax is the name of the method that it, they used in Africa to make statues and heads made of iron. Um, African gold was also very important, a very important mineral resource, especially in the Indian Ocean and Red Sea trades, because India um, imported a ton of it, especially once they depleted their own gold resources. They had to import a lot from Africa. On to new Islamic empires. So remember that in 1258, the Mongols destroyed the Baghda Baghdad Caliphate. Yet, territorial expansion of Islam still occurred from 1200 to 15, 
to 1500. Uh, the Ottoman conquest in Europe extended the Muslim domains greatly, um, but most of their expansion occurred in the south, so Africa and South and Southeastern Asia. Mali is the name of the empire created by indigenous Muslims in West Sudan of West Africa. Um, Mali, okay, from the 13th to 15th centuries. Mali was famous for its role in trans, the trans-Saharan gold trade. Um, it's an indigen, indigenous African dynasty, and it grew out of the peaceful influence of Muslim merchants and scholars. So this is in contrast to the Delhi Sultanate, which was founded and ruled by invading Turkish and Afghan Muslims. Um, so Mali in the Western Sudan. The Muslim role of North Africa in... Um, the Muslim rule of North Africa in the 1600s, it stimulates trade across the Sahara. So the faith of Muhammad slowly gets spread through the trade. In 1076, uh, the kingdom of Ghana collapses, and this is the empire that was preceding Mali in western Sudan. And this caused Muslim, this was caused by the invading Muslim Berbers. Um, but then Takrur, uh, a kingdom in the Atlantic coast, which was for the first to accept Islam, allied with these Muslim Berber invaders. And then, um, so farther east, since 652, there had been a truce between Christian Nubia and the Muslim Egypt. But this now fell apart in the 1200s because of the invaders. And um, the Mamluks of Cairo made repeated attacks, and so Christian Nubia gradually fell. Um, Islam's spread is considered great, gradual and peaceful. Takrur, that kingdom that I mentioned, um, which was invading, uh, was expanding with the king Sumanguru. Um, uh, and he caused the great expansion of his kingdom, but then he was defeated by the Sundiata, which was the start of which was the start of the Malinki people. The Sundiata defeated Samanguru's much bigger forces because of their superior military moves and tactics. And this was the story of how the Mali Empire was born. So Sundiata's empire, now Sumanguru, was defeated. So Sumang Sundiata's empire depends on its agricultural base and also its trans-Saharan trade routes. So Mali is considered like the newer and bigger Ghana because it basically um, takes place once Ghana falls or it, it starts. Um, and Islam is hugely spread through Mali and the creation of it. Um, the control of gold and silver trades gives Mali unprecedented authority, especially with Africa being the one of the main exporters of gold. So the ruler that ruled from 12, uh, 1312 to 1337 was Mansa Kankan Kan Musa, and he made a pilgrimage to Mecca in which he made a huge display of wealth and he brought so much gold and so many slaves with him that everyone was really impressed. And this kind of threw off the economy in the places that he visited, but it also showed people how powerful this new kingdom of Mali was and it's, it spread the empire's reputation for wealth. Uh, 200 years later though, after its birth, Mali began to disintegrate. Although the cities of the upper Niger River survived the collapse, probably because they had, um, because their uh, location on the river made it easier for them than other cities. So the central Sudanic state called Kan Kanemborum, 
no, I'm sorry, Khan and Bornu, it conquered territories and also spread the ra- the rule of Islam, um, especially after the Mali Empire collapsed. So now on to the Delhi Sultanate in India. So the Gupta Empire and its defensive unity ended a long time ago. So India had a long period where there was really no centralized rule, just separate kingdoms. Um, India was subjected to raids by the Sultan Mahmud, and a series of Afghan and Turkic dynasties rule India from 1206 to 1526. Um, Sultan Iltutmish from 1211 to 1236 made conquests that gave Big Realm the largest in, in India. Um, he makes, he gives the Indians pretty decent treatment, um, although he is opposed to idol worship and he makes the Indians pay a jizya tax. Uh, one thing that I find really good about Sultan Iltutmish is that he puts his daughter on as the next to be uh, to inherit the throne, his daughter Rezia, instead of all of his sons, because he finds that his sons are too wrapped up in um, superficial things and they're too um, searching for pleasure. But uh, he put his daughter on the throne because she was very he he consider, he said that there was nobody better to rule than her. So Razia she dressed like a man and led troops on an elephant, um, but she was eventually killed by a robber. So sad ending for her. Gujarat. This is an important term. It's the region of um of Western India famous for trade and manufacturing. Gujarat is a rich trading state. And it's taken under control of the Indian Sultanate too. Um, so Sultan Muhammad ibn, ibn Tughlaq, he enlarges the Sultanate to a great extent. So his control over India makes it a lot stronger. And he has an aggressive policy, but combined with religious tolerance. So he could be considered a fair leader in that regard. So in Delhi, the Sultans often relied on force, though, to keep their subjects submissive. Um, there was often pillage and high taxes to sustain the ruling elite that lived there. The Muslim elite would sometimes marry women from prominent Hindu families, um, although most of the time there wasn't too much mixing of the cultures. Um, the Sultanate absolved the... When the Sultanate absolved the Brahmani kingdom... And the Vijayanagar, sorry, I'm so sorry. The Vijayanagar kingdom empire. Okay, the Brahmahi kingdom, or the Brahmani kingdom, and the Vijayanagar empire. Wow, this is really hard to pronounce. So, well, after the Sultanate uh, was absolved, they they worked together despite their religious differences, um, and. And they kind of, um, they kind of represented the central control that was left in India after the Sultanate disappeared. And um, it's also important to note that even though the Delhi Sultanate um, was not that good for most Indians, it did trigger the development of centralized political authority in India on their own terms. Um, and Islam gradually acquired a permanent place in Southern Asia because of this. 
Um, also, when Delhi's central authority f- first weakened, the Mongols became very interested. And in 1398, Timur, the Turco-Mongol leader, captured Delhi himself, even though he never really established um, a permanent kind of uh, rule or law there. Next, we'll move on to Indian Ocean trade. From 1200 to 1500, trade in the Indian Ocean um, increased uh, drastically. This is due to the Mongol collapse in the 1300s, which weakened overland trade and forced people to go back into the ocean. Um, Also, the demand for luxury was on the rise. The Dao is the name of the characteristic cargo and passenger ship of the Arabian Sea. It's tied together with palm fiber. And junks are the largest, most technologically advanced and seaworthy vessels of the time, which originated in China. And they are hammered together with enormous nails, and they show a clear superiority in, uh, in quality. So Indian Ocean trade is connected by decentralized yet cooperative commercial interests. The Swahili coast is really important. It's on the eastern Africa coast and it shares the Indian Ocean between the Horn of Africa and the Zambezi River. Um, Swahili means shores in Arabic. Uh, The Swahili coast supplied a lot of ivory, wood, and gold from the inland. And the Arabian Peninsula supplied horses, incense, and manufactured goods. The Strait of Malacca is a really a crucial uh, trade point because it was the meeting point for trade from Southeast Asia, China, and the Indian Ocean. Um, everyone kind of wanted control of this area. So Africa, the Swahili Coast, and Zimbabwe. This is our next topic. Um, So city-states were rising up in eastern Africa thanks to all the trade that was going on along the coast. Um, Coastal and and island Africans became known as Swahili. Uh, The major port of Kilwa um, is considered, and I quote, um, by a historical figure, one of the most beautiful and well-constructed towns in the world. Its capital city is uh, Great Zimbabwe. Um, in 1400, it had 18,000 inhabitants and many large stone structures. Great Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe was also a major trading center, just like Kilwa was a huge port. All right, Arabia, Aden, and the Red Sea. Aden, it's an important term. It's a port city in the modern South Arabian country of Yemen. Um, it's a major trading center in the Indian Ocean since ancient times. So Aden has been around very long. Um, it has, it's a convenient stopover for trade with India, the Persian Gulf, as well as East Africa and Egypt. So common commercial interests promoted good relations among different uh, regions and cultures. Um, so this was a very important effect that trade had. Uh, but it also, uh, I mean, as well as um, spreading religions, of course, but also conflicts um, did still arise occasionally. All right, on to India, Gujarat and the Malabar coast. The state of Gujarat in India, it prospered from expanding trade of the Arabian Sea. Um, it's rich in its agricultural hinterland and its long coastline. Um it was forced, forcedly in, incorporated into the Sultanate in 1298. 
Um, Gujaratis exported cotton and textiles, as well as indigo, and the merchants of Gujaratis helped to spread the Islamic faith. Um, Gujarat was also known for making sleeping mats. Uh, the Gujarat city of Cambay can be correlated to Flanders of northern Italy. Uh, both were very, um, very crucial in textiles, and they both... Uh, were very culture-rich in this way. Um, Gujarat was a well laid out with streets um, and its open places, and it had fine stone houses with tilted roofs, so very beautiful place. Um, the cities on Malabar, the West Indian coast, it in- imitated Gujarat's success. Um, but note that most of the trading lay in the hands of the Muslims, um, who came from Iran and Arabia, so the Indians really didn't have that much control themselves. Okay, southeastern Asia. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Strait of Malacca is a commercial choke point. It's a huge site of political rivalry. Um, its principal passage is the Shimsi. Um, the kingdom of Sian is on the mainland, and it controlled the mainland of Asia, and it controlled the Upper Malay Peninsula. The Java-based kingdom of Majapahit controlled the Lower Malay Peninsula and much of Sumatra. Um, Majapahit, the Java-based kingdom, had troubles trouble with Chinese pirates. So in 1407, it was part of Zheng He's mission to lead a fleet to crush these pirates. Uh, Zheng He, for those who don't know, he was a famous, uh, very famous explorer of the Chinese empire, Ming empire. And he was like um, an early version of the conquistadors because for the French and Spanish started exploring much later than the Chinese who had already been doing huge overseas voyages um, before, as early as 1407, like I said. Um, So the port of Malacca, it's a port city on the midland of Malaysia. It was founded in 1400 as a trading center on the Strait of Malacca. So Malacca, Strait of Malacca, and it had an alliance with China, yet also good relations to Islam. Malacca is considered an emporium for Southeastern Asian products. It's both wealthy and cosmopolitan, with many different languages being spoken in, its, in the town, and many different cultures and people. Social and cultural change. So state growth, commercial expansion, and the spread of Islam between 1200 and 1500 led to changes in the society and cultural, cultural life of many people. So Muslim political and cultural elites grew in number and power during this time period. Um, And in Africa and India, many syncretic uh, religious formations were happening with Islam because they were, Islam was being adapted into local cultures and religions. Architecture, learning, and religion. So African Muslims built many Middle Eastern mosques out of their traditional sun-baked clay in their uh, traditional style. And in Gujarat, in India, which was newly Islamic, mosques were also constructed. Um, And in 1325, there was a huge congregational mosque built at Cambay, which used Indian uh, no, not agriculture, architecture. Um, So mosques, churches, and temples are the centers of education, prayer, and ritual for these people. Um, Muslims promote literacy for sacred texts, and Persian and Arabic words are now often incorporated into Sanskrit and Dravidian languages, such as Tamil. So you can see how um, Islam and 
how the religion of Islam and Muslims are making a huge cultural, linguistic, and religious change both in Africa and throughout India. So Muslim introduced paper to many places. Um, This was not really that much of a step up from the leaves they were writing on because it was hard to preserve preserve paper in these hot tropical regions. Um, Muslim scholars study the Quran and also Islamic law and theology. Um, Only some of them have interests in mathematics, science, um, medicine, and philosophy. Uh, Timbuktu is an important... Oh, um, and I forgot to mention a few things about language. So Persian was the court language of the Delhi Sultanate. Um, So it makes sense that a Middle Eastern language was used since the Muslims were ruling India at this time. And Urdu is an important term. It's a person who influenced... Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's a Persian-influenced literary form of Hindi written in Arabic characters and used as literary language since the 1300s. Urdu became crucially important. Um, So if there's nothing else that suggests that there was an amalgamation of cultures at this point, it's, it's this. This is very important, Urdu. Um, an important city was Timbuktu. It's located on the Niger River, and it's part of the Mali Empire. Um, it was a major terminus of the Trans-Saharan uh, trade, and a center also for Islamic learning. Um, uh, Timbuktu was shows that um, the, the Mali Empire was hugely important in the Trans-Saharan trade, but the fact that it's such a huge learning center is very important too, because Delhi was another huge center for learning, and this was thanks to the, um, thanks to the Muslims. Okay, uh, Muslims dominated long-distance trade, and this assisted the adoption of Islam. Um, it influences the spread along trade routes, uh, but Islam also spread rurally. <gasps> So with agricultural techniques and such, uh, the religion was spread. Um, The marriage of Muslim men to local women was also spreading rurally, which helped to bring the religion to new places, not just in urban areas. Um, Muslim invasions in India um, pretty much eradicate Buddhism at this point. So what what had been so popular in the 600s was now almost completely completely gone. Monks were driven into exile in Nepal and Tibet, where the religion continued to survive. Islam was now a huge religion in, in India. It was the second biggest religion under under Hinduism, and it replaces Hinduism in prestige in most places. Um, in Southeast Asia, Islam prevails a lot in the South, yet there's still Buddhism in Northern Southeast Asia, in uh, places like Thailand, Cambodia, and Burma. Onto social and gender distinctions. Um, at this time, there's a growth in slavery because um, they were sold around a lot in, uh, in trade and they were also used politically by different leaders. Um, by, they were given as gifts, for example, or used as armies. Uh, free labor, this was abundant and cheap, and slaves, um, uh, they also... Demon- they also Reigned in cert- they also were big in certain trades and military units. Unfortunate slaves had to do hard menial labor, like working in a copper mine. 
Uh, wealthy households often had slave servants, more often women than men, and some rich men at this time tried to get a, a concubine from every country in the world. Um, the position of Hindu... Uh, the position of Hindu women was slightly improving at this time. Sati, which be, was form, which was formerly a required practice, in wherein an upper class woman turned or threw herself on her husband's funeral pyre, became strictly optional at this time. Um, marriage was still at a very young age for women, but um, perhaps not as young as it was before. And uh, a woman's status was still determined by her male master. Um, women were not at all involved in commerce, administration, and religion. Um, these, uh, this treatment of women that was going on in India was also very similar to the Muslims' conception of genders um, in this time period. And also African, African Islam was similar. Um, so what did the women do? Well, they reared children, they prepared food, and they brewed beer. Um, and in tropical Asia and Africa, they did a lot of the farm work. All right, now shifting over to the Western Hemisphere. Um, the region's two most powerful urbanized area in the er empires were the Aztecs of Mexico and the Inca of Peru. Mesoamerica had a series of urbanized societies from 2000 BCE onwards, um, such as the Olmec, Maya, and the Toltecs. Um, in the coastal deserts of the Andean region, there were the Moche, the Tiwanaku, Wari, and Chimu. So first we'll talk about Mesoamerica, the Aztecs. The Mexica are the people who pushed into the Me in Mexico after the Toltec Empire collapsed, and the Mexica created the Aztec Empire. Altepeti is an important term, meaning an ethnic state in ancient Mesoamerica, the common political building block of that region. It was led, um, it was led by a Tiatoani, also known as a ruler, and these Altepeti directed re their religious, social, and political obligations, so there were many of them. Um, Calpoli, I mean, Kalpoi was a group of up to 100 families that served as a social building block of an Altepeti in ancient Mesoamerica. Um, capitals of the Aztec Empire, um, the biggest one was Tenochtitlan. It was the capital of the Aztec Empire with a population of one, 125,000 before the Spanish came. Uh, Tlatelolca was, was also an important city. The Aztecs, also known as the Mexica, were a powerful empire in central Mexico from 1325 to 1521. They forced defeated people to provide goods and laborers as ta as a tax, and they adopted a maniacal, no, I mean a monarchical system. They developed a remarkable urban landscape that is often overlooked. Um, women had substantial power and broad influence in this society, yet there were still clearly distinguished gender roles. Um, this, historians give this a term called gender complementarity. So women dominated the household and the markets, and they could also have been priestesses often, and they were seen as the founders of lineages. Uh, by 1500, though, there were great inequalities of wealth and privileges uh, which characterized the Aztec society. 
merchants were essential in the political and military intelligence of cities, and the nobility the nobility were jealous of their system. So, um, so there was a kind of uh, tense relationship between the merchants and the nobility. Um, so feeding the urban places. Um, obviously, the people who lived in towns did not often work on farms. So feeding the urban was done by the Cal- the Kalpoi and the Chinampas. So the Kalpoi o- organized the, um, the growing of food. And the Chinampas were artificial island gardens, which were... Um, which were essential in being able to grow all the food needed for these people. The tribute system is an important term for the system where defeated people were forced to pay tax as goods and also labor. Um, they, the tribute system helped, large, helped feed large cities. Commerce was carried out without money and credit, so these people used the barter system. Religious rituals dominated public life in Tenochtitlan, and the ruler made a great uh, spectacle for people out of these um, out of these religious rituals. And they were the goal was to impress visitors. Also, gods were both male and female, and they had many um, similar to Indian gods. Uh, their main god was Hitzilopochtli which was a bird god, and uh, he was very important in their religion. The last society we'll talk about is the Andes, um, and specifically the Inca. The Inca are the largest and most powerful Andean empire. Uh, the, cap- the capital in Cuzco controlled Pacific, the Pacific coast of South America from all the way from Ecuador to Chile. In 1525, there was a population of over 6 million in the Inca empire. Um, the Cusco Empire was a very impressive place. Um, although they only had a population of 30,000 there, um, it was still a very gigantic city. The city planning was in the shape of a giant puma, so there was great ar- um, architectural thought and planning that went into this. Um, they had a temple of the sun with gold galore on the interior and and exterior. Um, the rulers in Cusco really tried to impress and awe with their architecture. In 1430, strong and resourceful re- leaders consolidated their political authority and also made um, a campaign of military expansion. So this is how the empire got so big. The Inca had a very strong military and... Um, Ayus is the name of the self-governing extended family groups. Um, Inca, the Inca were largely pastoralists, and they had large herds of llamas and alpacas, which provided them with food, clothing, and also helped them to transport their goods. They used the Mita labor system of forced service to a ruler. This helped to provide for the old, the weak, and the ill, and it drafted laborers from each Ayu um, who would do work at a certain time in the year. Conquest greatly magnified the authority of the Inca ruler. Um, Kipus is an important term for the system of knotted colored cords used by the preliterate Andean people to transmit information. They used Kipus before they developed written language, and this was very important in their society for as a record-keeping system. Um, these uh, Inca people also made very beautiful textiles, and they had much economic output, although they weren't credited with making much technological innovation. Um, the Inca Empire went through a huge crisis in 1525, where the death of their leader was followed by a bloody struggle for the throne, um, and 
two rival sons were competing for this throne, which led to a civil war, which um, which really tore th- these people apart before even before the Portuguese um, conquest began. So that that was chapter 14, the Southern Empire and Southern Seas from 1200 to 1500. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you.